Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and I am your host Brian, and I am here today with a gentleman named Joshua Lecter, who's joining us from Perth, Australia. Uh, Good morning to me, Josh, and good evening to you. Thanks, Brian. Good morning. Hey, yeah, well, Josh, you and I got to know each other a little bit on a, a... interesting little exercise by a company called Wikistrat, who's kind of a think tank and they get people together to to uh, work through difficult and thought-provoking scenarios and they they kind of keep us in our lanes and respond back with with questions and I was very interested in the conversation that you were providing and I thought you'd make a great guest on the show Thanks. So, so Josh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about about your background and why you decided to come into this career. Maybe tell us about your schooling and and what the schooling led you to. Okay. Um, I suppose in upper school, um, I didn't go through all the way to year twelve, which in Australia is the final year before you would go to university. I completed year 10 and then um, decided that I would go out into the workforce. So I actually um, worked in a fair few jobs and then around 18 I got into the mining industry um, and worked through from 18 to my early, early mid 20s. Uh, and I had put together a strategy where I wanted to learn as much as I could. Uh, over the entire mining industry. So I I did between three and six months uh, at a number of different mine sites in north of Western Australia. Um, So I worked for Rio Tinto at the salt facility where we built the salt wash plant, uh, did work on the concrete pads going into the shipping reclaimers where they uh, stockpiled the salt and put it into the ships. I worked at a few contracts at uh, Wim Creek Copper Mine, which actually was probably one of the funnest jobs in the mining industry where they gave me a ute, a map. Uh, In the back of the ute was some pumps and various equipment and a DVD player. And I was wondering what the DVD player was was for. And then um, I worked out that when we were going out and doing bore sampling, and um, we had to bleed the bores for a certain period of time before we could take the sample. And sometimes that was, you know, 20, 30 minutes. So literally got paid to watch movies. But um, at that, that side as well, I did one, one contract was where the copper reaches out and basically goes into a giant battery and you have an overhead crane and you, you've got a... Uh, sort of align, align the overhead crane up with a slit in the top where you're walking and um, you hook onto a plate and then you pull out these sheets of copper 
and sometimes I have nodes on them. And when the node hits the hits the edge, it creates a lightning bolt, probably bigger than a bigger than a bottle of water, and it shoots past you. So it's quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So I did, did a few other jobs from working in laboratories um, at Rio Tinto as well, on all mine site, um, and sort of did a bit of trade assistant work. Um, but this was probably just before the big mining boom in Australia, and um, decided to have a break from the mining industry. I then went into the Navy and worked as a mechanical, I got a trade as a mechanical technician um, on, and worked on submarines for just under four years. Mm. And while I was in there, I decided that I would be working for myself when I got out of the um, out of Navy. And um, I did some initial contracts uh, working for a company called Calidus Group where we did um, pressure testing on valves for mine sites and then I also did some uh, maintenance um, work for Rio Tindo sites as well um, inspection and sign off and that sort of thing uh, and at the same time as I was doing that I was setting up my first resource company which was called Allotropes Diamonds and that was in West Africa in Sierra Leone uh, everyone told me I'd lose all my money in yeah. Probably, you know, wouldn't turn out that good. Yeah. 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 I decided to go all in and um that turned out after after about two years of sleeping in tents in hundred percent humidity, so it was literally like a sauna. <laughs> in the middle of the jungle on top of rocks. <laughs> um, ended up getting a reverse takeover with a publicly listed company. Newfield Resources on the Australian Stock Exchange, huh. Huh. and that sort of transitioned me to a new level um, within the mining industry. Um, since then, I've been uh, board members uh, of two two other ASX listed companies, um, and a few years back, decided to have a break again from the mining industry and set up an R&D company. Yeah. So that's sort of my background from my my schooling age, younger age, through to through to sort of now within the mining mining experience, and that's what led us to to meet, I suppose, on Monkey Strap. Yeah, yeah, um, quite the uh, varied varied background. Uh, somewhat unusual, <laughs> I I would guess I would say, uh, but it also sounds fascinating and uh, uh, intriguing in many ways. Yeah. I suppose most people go for a a career path, but I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was for me. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. Good for you. And then it seems seems like it's working out pretty well for you. So you you've got uh, an R and D company, and you you've also created a, a space industries company. Yeah. So more recently, um, sort of an offshoot from the R and D company and. A couple of those projects that that led me to be involved in, I um, identified that some of the people around me were quite talented, but not working in or using their skill sets. So um, when I was working on the submarines, I sort of had a bit of a um, 
suppose uh, ignition for or a bit of inspire inspiration for the space industry working in a, in a tube that you can't see out of and yeah, yeah, the bottom yeah, of the ocean, yeah, sort of yeah. similar environment to space. Um, and yeah, having these people around me, I decided, you know, wouldn't mind having a look at what we can do with the space industry and using the experience from the submarines and the mining industry. Um, and that's when we formed Space Industries. So utilizing the, my background in the mining industry and remote hostile environments and um, <laughs> yeah. that side of thing, uh, decided to focus on space mining. Yeah. So, yeah, I understand that Sierra Leone might be remote and in a hostile environment, but the moon is a vastly different thing. It is, yes. Yeah. So what yes. what, what what are you uh, what are your efforts at space industries now? Yeah, so what we what we did is we decided to focus on a commodity that's rare. Seems to be a bit of a thing that I have going with the, the diamond company and the lithium company and but um so we focused on a commodity that was rare, so we just we chose helium three, um, which there's no natural resources of helium three on Earth. Um that currently man-made um, using the waste product of nuclear weapon production, which produces uh, tritium. The tritium decays over uh, 12.3 years, releasing helium-3. Um, so we thought that would be a good start. It's rare, expensive. You can bring it back from the moon in very small quantities uh, in weight, weight and mass. Um, is still considered on Earth a large volume of it. So if you were trying to bring back gold or titanium, that's a bit difficult because you're probably not going to get it off the moon um, and not, get it, not going to get it back to Earth in quantities that'll you know, be valuable or make a, make a profit on that. So Helium-3 was the number one. Um, and then as we were looking into how the Helium-3 deposits on on the moon and stored into the regolith which comes from the sun um, we also realized that the radiation from the sun is also depositing the protons which uh, as soon as it deposits onto the regolith the lunar dust it's then combining with electrons um, and then that's producing hydrogen which then is combining with in the soil and the regolith has 40 odd percent uh, oxygen, which is bonded to silica, and then the oxygen and the hydrogen bond together and produce, pardon me, produces water, uh, or hydroxyl, which essentially is water bonded to silica. So by producing helium-3, we figured out we can actually produce water at the same time, which looking at the way the space industry is going and the Artemis missions, putting humans back on the moon 2024 through to 2028, um, water seems like a pretty good commodity as well, so we managed to be able to score two really good commodities um, in the same process as one mining operation. Yeah, and in, and in parallel timing with that, there's companies here on Earth that are doing research and development into the fusion reactors for energy um, production with the helium-3, so hopefully the two um developments come together right at the right time yeah so 
Yeah, a lot of people, when you mention helium-3, they have the first thing they think of is fusion energy and the potential for um, replacing oil and gas as energy sources. Um, one thing that most people don't realise is that most people actually have been in close contact to helium-3 before. So MRI scanners, the magnets in those are cooled by helium-3. Um, if you have uh, lung disease, respiratory disease, um, you can actually uh, identify and map your lungs by inhaling the helium-3 and then going in an MRI scanner. They, they use it for medical imaging. Um, there's new treatment methods for respiratory diseases, which is where they, they get the helium-3 and they combine it with oxygen and they put it onto the exact locations that were identified within your lung and they can actually start to, to treat that, the lung disease. Um, other uses outside of the medical industry is neutron detectors. So after 9-11, um, the US government actually depleted all of their stockpiled helium-3 by making neutron detectors. Mm. They put around all the borders and in some cities throughout the United States to detect any plutonium or radioactive materials being transported around. Yeah. Um, and then um, another, another use would be uh, supercooling. So combining helium-3 and helium-4, which is helium-4 is the normal one that we breathe in and makes your voice sound funny. So yeah. helium-3 and helium-4 combined, uh, and that allows us to get the coldest temperatures on Earth, so down to 0.2 kelvins. So for example, a use for that could be large data centers, which most of the cost of a data center is the cooling um, and the energy consumption is astronomical. At the moment, the world's trying to reduce the amount of energy that we use, and um, this is a good way to actually do that um, for data centers, even cooling nuclear power plants, uh, cooling large battery stations. Um, so that could use helium-3 as well. And then the, the holy grail is nuclear fusion. So Yeah, that that's amazing. So most of the helium-3 that's used on Earth, is it naturally occurring or is it manufactured? It's manufactured from waste products yeah. of uh, tritium. Yeah. Um, the other method that's starting to be looked at is uh, bombardment of lithium, um, but it's a very slow production of helium-3. Uh, it's not definitely not economical. Uh, there's another method where they uh, can extract or recover helium-3 from nuclear power plants, um, but to produce eight kilograms, for example, would take uh, roughly 80 years. A nuclear power plant has a life of about 40 years, so you're looking at two, two nuclear power stations and 80 years just to produce eight kilograms. And we can probably produce that in you know, a year on the moon. Mm. And then to, to get eight kilograms back from the moon is quite simple. Yeah. We're working with a Polish company that actually has a has a small rocket which is powered by water. So we can send the rocket up empty, and then we can when we produce the water, we can fill up the rocket, and then we can launch. Twenty kilograms is what we're targeting to bring back in each launch back to Earth. 
In interesting. So you'd, you'd still have something like the Apollo mission used to deploy your uh, lunar vehicle from the rocket to the, the to the moon's surface and then launch it back to the the uh, orbiting rocket? Um, what we're planning on doing is probably a little bit simpler. Hmm. So, uh, you know, like a hobby rocket. Um, yeah, yeah. Slight, slightly larger size. So the rocket that we'll be using is around about 10 meters long um, in speed. Um, It'll hmm. be about 32 feet long, um, and that should be able to bring 20 kilograms back. So we literally will just launch it from the surface on the moon, and and recover that. So a good example of that style of recovery back to Earth is, um, I think it's called Hayabusa, Japanese. Um, they've returned samples uh, to Woomera here in Central Australia. So that's from an asteroid that actually returned. There's another sample uh, coming back at the end of this year in December, um, and that's that sample is going to be returned back to Australia as well. So essentially, we'll be doing the same thing, yeah. which is quite good for us because how all of our steps and processes have been kind of um, tried and tested yeah. previously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah. D describe your, your recovery vehicle and how far advanced is your your efforts in that and how close is it to becoming a reality? Yeah, so we've got, we call it the Lunar Resource Extraction Vehicle, or the LREV, um, and it's basically like a, a rover that looks similar to one of NASA's style of rovers, mm. um, except ours is designed to be more like a bulldozer or a tank as opposed to a uh, high precision scientific experiment carrying uh, rover that has to move quite slowly so these experiments don't get damaged. Um, so we designed our vehicle to be really high torque um, and we the, the vehicle itself has a mining method as well as its own power production method and it also has storage built into it. So it has a stage one processing system. So the, the way that it works is it has a parabolic dish on the top. The parabolic dish faces the sun, mm -hmm. collects yeah. the sun's radiation. We yeah. basically use a few mirrors on that parabolic dish to turn that sunlight into a laser beam. Um, that beam then shines down onto the mining unit that provides the mining unit with its heat. Um, the heat then the regolith is put through the mining method and uh, is heated from the sun. It heats up to the collect water, we heat it up to about 250 degrees to break the bonds of the silica and release the water as a, as a vapor. Um, and if we're mining helium-3, we heat it up to around about the 850 degrees mark to release the, uh, the helium-3 as well. So all those gases come up into the into the stage one processing unit. They then go through a pressurization and a temperature uh, difference to then turn it all back into water. The water then goes into the storage tanks. The gases that are left over is helium-3, helium-4 and nitrogen. Uh, we then use a membrane process to separate the nitrogen from the heliums. Uh, then they're stored separately and then the 
Um, once the once that rover vehicle is full in storage capacity, it then uh, comes back to the lander, and the lander has a stage two processing system. So all that water is transferred into the larger lander storage tanks, um, and the helium three and nitrogen is transferred into those um, storage tanks on the lander as well. The lander on the top of the lander then has the rockets that launch back the um, helium-3 and then the water stays in the lander and that basically becomes a fuel station. So it's permanent storage for water. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Uh, yes. yeah. so some of the greatest minds on Earth, which are also some of the wealthiest people on Earth, are looking into um, space mining and especially lunar mining, and, and those people are like Elon Musk and Naveen Jain and uh, Richard Branson. The, the, they, they must be paying attention to you. I'm not sure if they know about us. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure who knows about us. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to to see if they do know about us and if they're interested in resources and alternative methods to what currently has been discussed with the ice water and the South Poles and North Poles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Naveen Jain has written a book called Moonshots and there's a chapter on the Helium 3. So I'd be very surprised if he wasn't aware of your work. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what's what's next for your company? Are, are you what, what's the schedule and and uh, how soon do you think you could actually land something on the moon? So we've got a pretty aggressive schedule, I suppose, for the, the space industry. Um, last year, around the same time as we came to the states, um, participated in NASA ITech. Um, we also met uh, in Europe with Ariane. Um, and discussed with them launch potentials. Um, they've pretty much told us that we can have a launch within 1.5 to two years of booking um, and that there's a launch availability in 2023. So that's the schedule that we're trying to work towards by launching in 2023. Ideally for us, we want to be um, have water being produced before astronauts, 2024 NASA's astronauts uh, get to the moon. Um, that way we can sort of cement ourselves as a, a water provider on the on the lunar surface. Um, to make that happen, we've got a pretty aggressive development schedule. So last year we completed our initial foundation stages. So all the feasibilities, the earlier stage TRLs, um, and getting some market acceptance and some potential customers um, for the water and for helium three, which we've um, in discussions with two there. Um, and then this year we are building the demonstration vehicle. So yeah. for that we're actually building a one of the largest aerospace 3D printers at the moment, which is going to be able to peak, uh, print peak material and other similar materials up to 500 degrees printing temperature. Um, and we should have that finished by the middle of this year. Uh, from uh, July through to November, we'll be actually building and assembling the first demonstration vehicle. And we're targeting 
uh, a demonstration of the water production uh, in November. So from there, we will then progress with um, Jacobs in the United States, uh, who will help us with our verification validation. Um, and we're looking at then doing our flight uh, ready flight certification over the next two years after that, so 2021 and 2022. And then 2023, we should be finishing off the video uh, vehicle ready for launch. Oh, that 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 is remarkable and and very aggressive. That uh, yeah. it's fascinating. So where it, all this takes money? How do you generate your capital for this? So currently, I've been sort of self-funding this myself, um, yeah. but also we're using a little bit of a different strategy, I suppose, to what other companies may be using. So, like, fortunately, I've had the initial funds to be able to do this. We are we're doing a fundraising this this year, um, which will cover the demonstration vehicle through to our Series A round after we complete the, the demonstration of the water production. Um, but we've also got a lot of experts that are on board the team as advisors. Um, they've been uh, a sort of enabling us to progress quite rapidly, um, as well as I think it's just uh, about timing as well. So what we're doing and what we're focusing on, you know, even the Helium 3 side is fusion is just huge at the, mark, at the moment. And then uh, from the water side, you know, we've got the Artemis, Artemis missions coming up. So timing, I think, for us has just allowed us to get really good exposure into the right places as well. Um, yeah. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll all be paying attention and staying tuned to see what happens next. Do you have a, a website that people could kind of follow your progress or a Facebook page? Or how, how would people follow along with your your um, your product. Our website's our website's pretty simple. It's just spaceindustries.com.au. Okay. Um, so we've got a some information there on our vehicle. Um, we've got some information on our space precinct that we're building here in Western Australia as well. Um, blogs and some updates go on there, as well as we've got LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Twitter's sort of a new thing for us. Not, not as big as it is in the States, so we're yeah. sort of starting to get introduced there. Uh, and then we've got a little bit of an Instagram page and YouTube that we're looking at starting up. Um, so we're actually filming the uh, the progress on the 3D printer, mm. and we're going to be putting some videos up so people can can have a look and see how we build it and stuff. Yeah. And then that all those videos will progress into the, the space precincts that we're building, which will progress into the, the demonstration vehicle and that as well. Yeah. So we'll take people on the journey with us. Yeah, that's yeah, that's amazing. I appreciate that. And hopefully you get some people connecting to you on your website and who knows, maybe uh, maybe something else will happen there you can find some funding or something from one of the connections and uh, no, that's 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 terrific Joshua um, so you know I, I think we we uh, covered everything that I could think of is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners yeah there's uh, anyone that's interested in STEM or STEAM um, we've got a art program that we're currently running where you can submit your artwork 
and we're actually going to compile all the art artwork into a um, into one big image that we'll put on the fairings of the rocket when we do our launch. Um, <laughs> uh. And then we're, we're going to come up with a solution for recovering the fairings and actually put it into the museum um, here in Perth. Hmm. So that's a little bit of something fun. That yeah. Even if it's a stick figure, that's <laughs> happy. We're happy to put that on there. <laughs> we'll put anything there. Everyone can go to space. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... that's, uh, that's... Yeah, yep. that is fun. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I don't I don't think of any any more questions, and I know it's getting getting late there in Perth, so I think I will let you go. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming on and sharing all that amazing information with us, and I certainly wish the best for you and for your company, and I hope you achieve every one of your goals. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for your time and viewers and listeners as well. Um, yeah, I think space is amazing, and everyone can have a piece of it. So, yeah, well, great. Uh, and I will be following your progress. And thanks again, Josh. All right. Thanks, Brian. Mm-hmm. Ciao. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.